We're going to be starting a series on the book of Colossians. And it's just so appropriate for where we're at even today. The book of Colossians. You know, we are in a time in this world where things are just out of control. Amen? So many ways, so many areas. And in so much of the world, there is already so much greater persecution on the church and on believers than we can imagine here in this country. We whine and complain about a little bit of persecution. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And one of the things that we need to do as Christians, we continually need to have a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. Who He is and what He has done and what He has promises for us and to us. The promises of God. And we also need to be reminded there is a cost as well as a joy of being disciples of Jesus Christ. And a fresh revelation of Jesus and who He truly is from the Scriptures is so important in each one of our lives. And Paul is going to be opening this letter into Colossians, and he's going to open it with a simple introduction, very similar to many of his introductions. But he's going to be talking about the power of, the, of Christ. And then what's going to follow as we go through the book of Colossians, we're going to see, we're going to see the most comprehensive and the most precise, most detailed teaching on the doctrine of Christ, even if you didn't know that's what it's called. And Paul in all of his other writings, there's nothing that compares to the book of Colossians in talking about Christ, the supremacy of Christ, who he is, what he's done who he wants us to know 2,000 years later that he was trying to get the church in Colossae to know at that time. Why did he write this letter to the church in Colossae? Why did he write this letter at this time to this church? Well, I think we can probably assume, and I'll elaborate on that assumption in just a minute, because I'd hate it when we assume too many things about the Scripture, things that aren't written there. But I think when we read this and if we go through the text really carefully and reading it, we can look, it's kind of like an internal investigation. Okay? He's addressing so many issues here that I think we can safely assume have crept into the church in Colossae. And he's going to deal with them and we'll talk about them a little bit today. But whatever the problems were, whatever the questions were, Assuming there were some, he came up with the answer. And the answer is the answer for just about everything. A better understanding of Jesus. Knowing Him better. Knowing the person of Jesus. Knowing who He is. And we as Christians, and maybe have heard the Bible stories growing up in Sunday school, we hear it all the time. I think, obviously, we can lose focus on just how amazing He is. How amazing what He did is. We're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. <clears throat> it's, it's, Colossians is one of the books in the Bible that falls into that category called the epistles. And the epistles is just another word for letters. These are letters written to the churches. And this one, of course, is written to the church in Colossae and it's called the book of Colossians. That's what we're going to be looking at. And to give us a little context, and I'm going to spend more time this morning up front anyway on context, because it's so important to get the fullness, as much of the fullness 
out of the Scriptures as we possibly can. Paul at this time, as best historians can tell, he is sitting in a prison in Rome. That's where he's at. And it's written in about 62 A.D. So it's sometime after Jesus, but it's still first century. All that had taken place would still be really fresh in the people's minds. And he is written, he is writing this to this specific church, but because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can safely regard it as being something for us also, even though it was written for that specific church. And he's written this letter in response to a report that he had received from a visitor. And then a man by the name of Epaphras had came to visit him in Rome. And it appears in, from the scriptures, and you'll see this as we go through the book, that Epaphras is probably the one who evangelized the city of Colossae. We're probably going to see, or we are going to see, that the Apostle Paul probably never, ever even visited there. It's very close to the village or the city of Ephesus, which the book of Ephesians was written to. And it appears from history that the, book of, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Colossae were written at the same time, and they were both given to the courier to take at the same time because these two cities are so close to one another. But as we read about Paul and his passion for this people, we need to realize he's probably never met him, And yet there's a love there for this church that we should see demonstrated for all, through all of us for Christ's church. And we're going to see that he... He does, has a unique way of writing as only Paul can. It's almost like he prays first and there's a whole sermon in the prayer and then he goes ahead and he goes into great detail on a lot of what he wants to talk about. Context. These scriptures, a lot of the scriptures, a lot of the epistles are referred to with a term that you may or may not be familiar with They're called occasional documents. Occasional documents. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean they're good just once in a while. That's not what it means. What it means is the epistles or letters are called occasional documents because they are coming out of a specific time frame. There's a specific question, specific group of people. Paul is writing this out of the context of him being the author, a man sitting in prison who has given his life for Christ. And he's writing it to a particular audience. And this audience is his church in Colossae. So it is a very particular and specific for them. But yet remember, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what's written in it is as relevant for us as it was for them. But I think it's important as we begin to look into it so we can get all of, the, all of the depth or as much of the depth of the teaching out of it as possible by understanding the motivation as best we can of Paul writing this letter and why he is attacking and dealing with these things so precisely. As I said, there's no other epistle, no other letter that he wrote to any other church where he goes into such detail about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It's that important to him. So in one sense, it's a little bit... If you, if you go into the different commentaries and reading about the book of Colossians, there's, there's quite a bit of disagreement amongst the commentators about what Paul is really doing here because we don't have an obvious reason for him 
answering or responding in so many different ways to so many specific details. So we call it, they call it an internal investigation. As you go through the book, you go, wow, there's that. He's dealing with this issue. Wow, there's that. That's another issue. And he goes through the whole book, and there's issue after issue after issue piled up, and he's dealing with them all. So it appears that the letter and the report that was brought to him had some questions, had some serious concerns of things that were happening in the church. It's a little bit like, how many of you have ever been visiting with somebody? I'm sure almost all of us. And their phone rings. And they pick up the phone and they start talking on the phone. And as they're talking on the phone, you're hearing the conversation, but you're only hearing one side of the conversation. And if you're a little curious, which maybe we might be, we're trying to figure out what in the heck's going on here. What are they talking about? Why would they say such a thing? You know, it's like, just use your imagination. Here's a conversation. I'm visiting with you. Hi, how you doing? We go through it. And I say, what's going on? And you don't get to hear the other side of the conversation. But you heard me say, what's going on? I hesitate for a few minutes, for a few moments. I would never, ever apply that to this situation. Not if I was you. No way would I do that. Then you don't hear a thing. And then the next thing I say is, you know what I would do if I was you? I would contact a trained professional or at least somebody with a whole lot more experience in these kinds of situations than I have. Silence again. I would just turn up the heat for now and see how everything responds. And silence. Well, if that doesn't work out well, just divorce yourself from the situation and go elsewhere for what's needed. How many of you want to come to me for counseling? What was the other side of the conversation? We really don't know, but if you're just taking everything I said and starting to figure out how do we apply what he's saying, the context is critical. I was responding to somebody who called me and wanted to know how to finish grilling their meat and get it tasting properly. That's all it was. It wasn't a wedding or a marriage or a relationship following. It wasn't. Why? Because we don't know context. And that's what happens so often if we're looking at what are called these occasional documents. Paul's writing a letter here, and we're seeing what he writes, but we don't know what came in the report that was given to him in prison. So my hope is, and my goal is, that we learn a little bit more about what was on the other end of the conversation so we can apply it in context. So what's going on? What's going on that would cause Paul to write this amazing letter to this church? Well, some people call it the Colossian heresy. Because of all the internal evidence, all the things that are addressed, they assume that there's at least two or three different types of heresy creeping into the church. It's a situation where they're believers, he's addressing believers, but they're adding on to the faith, and as they add things to it, it diminishes who Jesus Christ is. And we see this happening. And it appears that there's primarily two elements that, make, that are making up the heresy here. 
And those two elements, the first comes from Judaism. We will see as you go through this book, it looks like most of the believers in Colossae were Gentiles. But there was Jewish believers mixed in with the congregation. And for whatever reason, they were trying to add some things to Jesus Christ alone. Christ alone. What were they adding? Well, they said, we gotta, we gotta honor certain days above others. All those Sabbaths that we used to have, we need to, you know, we need to do a better job here. We need the Sabbaths and the new moons and all the other things that come with worshiping the new moons. We need to add that stuff here to this. We for sure need to talk about circumcision here. All these Gentiles are getting by without being circumcised. That's not even showing that they're God's people. And then all of a sudden we got the list of do nots. Do not eat this. Do not drink this. Do not do this on a certain day. Do not walk there. Don't touch this. All of those do nots. All of a sudden there's this Judaism trying to creep in and add it on top of Christ alone. And then it appears as you go through the book, there's something with the early Gnosticism, the Gnostics. And if you write an an interesting study, the Gnostics are just, they believe some of the craziest things. You'd think they were contemporaries of ours. Some of the crazy things that people will believe because somebody said it and they gave that guy some credibility or that gal some credibility. And it makes no sense whatsoever. With the Gnostics, there was a lot of angel worship. As a matter of fact, if you get into it, they believe there was a supreme being that is unapproachable. Then there was what we call God the Father. And then there's all these layers of angels of different ranks. And as we pray to the certain angels and worship certain angels, we work our way up to who we call God the Father. But we never can get to this supreme being. It's just crazy. The worship of angels. Throwing it in there. This self-denial, self-flagellation, ascetism, if you would, where they, you're just going to punish your body. As a matter of fact, they went so far as to separate uh, matter from thought. You say, well, okay, they are different, right? Well, what if I say that and I say, you know, therefore, only my matter, my physical body can sin, but my thought and spiritual life, that remains pure and holy. Wow, that means my body can do whatever it wants, satisfying the lust of the flesh, but my thoughts and my spirit, they remain pure and righteous. Crazy. But they believe that way. They even applied that to Christ. They, they believed Jesus was on earth, but he really wasn't physical. He just looked physical. He just appeared that way. So he really didn't die on a cross and really wasn't buried in a tomb and he really didn't rise again. He just looks like he did because he was spirit and not physical. And you can go down these lists of things that were creeping into the church and we assume that because of what Paul teaches as you go through the book of Colossians. And then one of their most powerful thoughts that caused lots of division was the superiority of knowledge. Gnosis, Gnostic. Gnosis means knowledge. The more we learn, we get closer and closer to salvation. Salvation is dependent upon knowledge. The only problem was what they believed was it's only for an elite few. Only you sitting in the front three rows can possibly have this knowledge. The rest of you, good luck. 
It's an elite thing. And all of this stuff creeping in. And we'll see that Paul calls them believers, calls them brothers, and he's not denying that they, they had faith in Christ, but it was no longer Christ alone. It was Christ plus this, 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 and this. And we see this yet today, don't we? In a lot of religions that are present in our world today. Oh, we don't deny Jesus is the Son of God, but you got to do this. you got to do that. If you don't do this, you probably can't possibly be saved. It creeps in and air creeps in and it's diminishing who Christ is. His supremacy. And this is what it appears that made it imperative that Paul would write this letter being so precise, so detailed about who Christ really is. So in the next few weeks as we're going through Colossians, I hope that you just kind of remind yourself of what's going on here. Why is Paul making such a big deal of this? And I think if we kind of can, can bring it into our contemporary times even, if you, if you study these things at all, if you're aware of what's going on in so many denominations, so many religious groups, so many religious organizations, in the, there's modern Gnostics, believe it or not. Only they've taken it even further than they did back in the time of Jesus. If we see this and know this, we can understand the scriptures even better. I believe. So we're going to look at the first 14 verses this morning. Won't be going into a terrible lot of detail today as we look at this, but I, I think it's important to launch into this with all of that as background. So in verse 1, Colossians 1 1, in verse 2, Paul is doing kind of a typical introduction to a letter. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, pointing out again. He's called as an apostle. That may seem insignificant to us, and the church at Colossae had probably heard of him, but it gives him credibility amongst a group of people that he may never have met. He says, I am an apostle called by God. So what I'm going to do is be speaking to you as an apostle called by God, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. To the saints, we talked about that recently. We're all saints, we're all believers. And his brethren, it may or may not make a specific reference to Jewish brothers in Christ. We're not sure. But they're believers. So when he's talking about all these things that are coming, remember he's talking to believers. Colossians 1, starting in verse 3. And I'm going to read these verses. Um, it'll be on the screen. Starting in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up in you in heaven, and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. Verse 7, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, 
who is faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Wow. If you go through that a little slower, it's like, my goodness, Paul, how can you put so much in one or two paragraphs? It's astounding what he's announcing there. We see making clear that Epaphras was the, Epaphras was the probable pastor teacher there. Colossae and Ephesus are so close to one another, he may have been taught by Paul in Ephesus on Paul's missionary journeys. We don't know. And you see that the love that he has for this group of people. Why? Not because he knows them personally, because they're part of the body of Christ. And notice those three words we see so often when we're looking at Christianity. Love, faith, and hope. Over and over we see that through Scripture. And Paul's acknowledging that with this group of people. And it would be a great model for prayer, if you want a model of prayer for prayer, to pray for the church. Notice he starts out with thanksgiving. He is thanking the Lord. We give thanks for you always, continually, because of what we know about you, what we've heard about you, the good works that we're hearing about from you. Notice he is dealing with this all before he starts teaching about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Praying a, a, a commendation upon them follows. We have heard of you. He's heard of you. What has he heard? We've heard about your faith in Christ. I mean, this is the kind of commendation you'd like for every church, right? Especially the one you attend. We've heard about your faith in Jesus Christ. We've heard about how much you love the brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints. How you love for one another. You care for one another. And we have heard about the hope that you have that's stored up for you in heaven. And that's just another way of saying in some of the translations say the hope that you have because the inheritance you have as saints. Your faith. He goes so far in the the way he phrases this. Your faith and your love is the result of the hope that you have in your inheritance. Our inheritance. Future above, in heaven. And then he talks about bearing fruit. He says, you know, ever since you heard the truth, you've been bearing fruit in every good work. Now, I I, I know we know this, but sometimes it's easy to forget. Whatever the Lord's called you to do, wherever He has placed you, whether you're working in full-time ministry or whether you're a businessman, you're a salesman, you're a custodian, a hairstylist, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What he's saying is you are, you are glorifying Christ in everything you do. We might phrase it like this. Whatever it is you're doing, do it unto the glory of God. Do it unto the glory of God. Give it your very best, no matter 
what He's called you to. And He is saying to the church in Colossae, we have heard about the fruit that you're bearing in every good work. And you're increasing in the knowledge of God. It's interesting to me how many times Paul makes reference to a lot of other attributes, but they're attached to your knowledge and understanding of God. You know, if we have a thorough knowledge and understanding of God, of His doctrines, a thorough knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ, it almost begins to render the enemy powerless. Powerless. When we do not have that knowledge and understanding of God is when we find ourselves in trouble. And it doesn't usually take very long. And lastly, he finishes that up. And all of this we also understand as you are living this way, it says that you may have, I'm going to read verse 11 again, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Be strengthened with all power that comes from him that gives you endurance and patience in every circumstance. Just the phraseology tells us that not everything we're going to experience as His children is going to be wonderful. It's not all going to be painless. He says you're going to need that kind of endurance and patience that comes from my strength in you, no matter what the circumstance. And He's preparing the church in Colossae, just as we need to be prepared as the church today. And then he goes on in the last section of Scripture that I'm going to look at this morning in verses 12 through 14. He gets very specific about what he's giving thanks to the Father for. And it's like for us, if we understand what, we appear, what appears to be the context of this letter being written to this church, it gives us some real clues as to what he's hoping this letter accomplishes in their lives. And therefore, what it could, should accomplish in our lives. In verse 12, he starts out giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us. Who has, again, man, just listen to what he's got in this few verses. It's astounding. And it's ours. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. And He's conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. It's just packed so tightly with all of these amazing things that Jesus Christ has done. He's qualified us. You know, so many religions... They will even add this too. You gotta, you gotta try harder. You gotta be better. You gotta do this. You gotta do this. You gotta do this. Oh yeah, it's all about Jesus dying on the cross. But, and he's saying, no, no, none of that other stuff. There is nothing else that will qualify you. You know, quit trying so hard to get saved because you'll never get saved trying hard. It won't qualify you. He has qualified us. What's he qualified us with? He's qualified us with his plan of salvation that was formed before the beginning, before we were created. That plan qualifies us when we accept the offer. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us, what my translation said, 
He's translated us, transferred us from the, the, the power of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His beloved Son. You know, we can hear those words and it just sounds words and it sounds pretty cool, but think about it for a second. We were members of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness. We were members of that kingdom. And He's transferred us into the kingdom of His Son. And when this happens, there's such a dramatic change that takes place. Or should. And it takes place by regeneration. What does that mean? You've been born again. We've been born again. Once we're born again, we are no longer in that kingdom of darkness. We are transferred to the kingdom of light. And from that kingdom, when, we're, when we are regenerated, when we receive the new birth, we're transferred, we're moving from that, that, that kingdom of sin, the kingdom of ignorance, the kingdom of pain and suffering, misery, to one of holiness, one of joy. One of knowledge. It changes everything. You know, when we are translated into this new kingdom, we are moving into a new culture. We're moving into a new community. We're moving into a new system of of laws, if you would. We're moving from one to the other. And it's a complete change. And so many Christians... They got saved, I got saved, and you watched me a life and nothing changed. If you went back in the timeline looking for the day you got saved, you would say, I don't see it. It's It's totally different. And it's an internal change that works itself outwardly in our life. Now, I'm not much of a baseball fan, but I do get into watching some of the playoffs when they start. And there's a guy, I wrote down his name so I wouldn't forget it. He's a center fielder for the Yankees. Thank you. We have a fan. Harrison Bader. Now, in, in professional sports, it didn't used to be this way, but it's very common to be traded from one team to another or become a free agent and go from one team to another. But one of the things that they have the hardest time adjusting to is the change in culture. Harrison Bader was with the St. Louis Cardinals. He can't help it. It was his parents' fault. <laughs> But if you saw a picture of Harrison Bader just this last year, he got ter- traded, I believe, in August from a team that was losers. Amen? No. <laughs> to a team the Yankees that make the playoffs. But if you look at a picture of him when he was a St. Louis Cardinal, if he took off his cap, first of all, his hair was down, you know, shoulder length down here. You take off his hat, he's got the bandana on. And then over here you take a picture of him as a New York Yankee. He looks like the all-American boy with a brand new haircut. And he's being interviewed. And one of the questions that I heard the guy ask him, he says, so how did the Yankees respond when you showed up with your hair? <laughs> he says, are you kidding? I knew better than that. I know the culture here is different. This hair was cut like this before I ever walked into the New York Yankees locker room or facilities. The culture was that different. And he recognized it in baseball. As Christians, we have a hard time demonstrating or realizing there should be a change in a culture from here in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We need to look different. 
We need to be different. And the benefits are amazingly different. Amazingly better for us. And it all comes about when there's that change in our life that takes place at the moment of salvation. When we are born again by the Spirit of God. It's the most important change that takes place in a human being's life. By far the most important thing that takes place in our life. And it all starts with a simple response to something that God, through His Son, has done for us. It all starts with a response. It's like having the most wonderful, wonderful culture, community, all of the provisions you would ever need, and it's just out of your reach. But the moment you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're no longer on the outside, now you're on the inside. And all those things, all the promises of God, are there for you. And again, I want to reiterate, it doesn't mean it's perfect. Life's not going to be perfect. There are going to be tough days ahead. But we now have the strength that comes from the living God in us, giving us strength to endure, to be patient, to walk this out. And it's all about how we respond to Christ. And as we go forward in the next few weeks into the book of Colossians, if you've not already accepted Christ, I hope getting a little better understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done is what the Holy Spirit uses to woo you, to respond. But even though we're going to be going into that, if you haven't responded, today is a good day to do that too. You know, personally accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Personally acknowledging I've got to repent of these sins. Repenting often gets left out of that cute salvation prayer we pray. We need to recognize we're sinners. Repent of that sin. And then accept Jesus Christ as the only acceptable sacrifice to wash away that sin. And surrender our lives to Him. To live our lives to bring Him glory and honor. You've never done that. Now's a good day. Matter of fact, if you'd like somebody to pray with you, I'd love to pray with you. Or anybody here would probably love to pray with you after the service. So let's pray. And I want to encourage you as we go forward. You Now you know where we're going to be for the next few weeks. We're going to be in the book of Colossians. I encourage you to read it. Do some meditating and studying on it. Heavenly Father, we just rejoice in you this morning. God, our Savior. Your Son, Jesus, we rejoice in the salvation that's available to all. God, that Your love for us is unending with no restriction. Father, we pray this morning that those things just settle into our hearts, into our spirit. Father, that we would give no place for the enemy to come and diminish who Jesus is and what He's done in our lives. That He is nothing but a liar and a deceiver and our our lives need to be built on the truth of who Jesus is. And that will render the enemy powerless. So I pray, Lord, that for each one of us as we delve into the book of Colossians, we get to truly see that it is Christ and Christ alone. That's where our salvation comes from. Pray, Father, as we go our separate ways today, Your Spirit leads us, guides us, directs us. God, I pray our lives do begin to resemble Christ more and more each day. And I pray, God, that we are about your business, taking every opportunity 
to share the hope that's within us, the hope of glory through Jesus. We pray for your safety and protection as we go. We ask all of this in your Son's name. Amen.